0: turn in your Bibles to the third chapter of the Gospel of John. We're going to begin reading in verse 22. After these things came Jesus and his disciples into the land of Judea, And there he tarried with them and baptized. And John was also baptizing in Anon, near to Salim, because there was much water there. And they came and were baptized. For John was not yet cast into prison. Then there arose a question between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purifying. And they came unto John, and they said unto him, Rabbi, he that was with thee beyond Jordan, to whom thou bearest witness, behold, The same baptizeth, and all men come to him. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing except to be given to him from heaven. Ye yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but that I am sent before him. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom, which standeth and heareth him, rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This, my joy, therefore, is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. He that cometh from above is above all. He that is of the earth is earthly and speaketh of the earth. He that cometh from heaven is above all. And what he hath seen and heard, that he testifieth, and no man receiveth his testimony. He that hath received his testimony hath set to his seal that God is true. For he whom God hath sent speaketh the words of God, for God giveth not the Spirit by measure unto him. The Father loveth the Son, and hath given all things into his hand. He that believeth on the Son has everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him." This is the word of our Lord. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we come humbly before the throne at this time, Lord, to explore your word, Lord, to learn about uh, the forerunner of our Lord, this Baptist John, Lord. We ask that you would uh, open our ears to hear, Lord, that you would cleanse our hearts and give us a clean conscience as we explore uh, your word, Lord, that we would come to know your son better, Lord, and that that he would be in our midst. Father, we ask that you be glorified in all this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So there's a few things that we have to talk about here. It's an interesting time. We uh, have been working our way through the Gospel of John, uh, Gospel written so that you would believe and believe in Christ as the Son, believe Christ, believe in Christ as uh, the Son of God, uh, the third or the second person in the Trinity. And so we are coming out of the discourse with Nicodemus, and I thought it would be. There's sort of uh, three things I kind of want to cover here. One is we have to close out the discourse on Nicodemus. We have to find out what happened in Nicodemus. Uh, we'll learn later in the Gospel of John what happens, but I want to cover it now so that you're, you don't have a cliffhanger. Uh, then we have to go through this uh, narrative of John uh, having a dialogue with some of the Jews in Samaria and what can we learn about John and about our Lord from that dialogue. You'll find that it's, his testimony is entirely consistent with everything we've learned so far. And then, of course, it's Father's Day. I want to talk a little bit about fathers and, and what can we learn from applying this text to uh, Father's Day, which is a day where we honor fathers. It's a good thing. I think it's a good thing that we celebrate a holiday like that. Um, and lastly, we're going into our annual meeting next week, and so um, we're going into a time of, I think, contemplation. I think we're having communion on Sunday of uh, the annual meeting. And so it should be a time of contemplation and self-evaluation. And so I think that there's just something there that I want to touch on as well. So I'm not going to take too much time, but I do want to hit all these points. Uh, Firstly, what happened to Nicodemus? Well, in the beginning, when Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night, he's asking, uh, well, he's actually not even asking, he's really just saying, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. And then Christ answers, despite there not being a question exactly, and he says, verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And this is the first time where we really get an elaborated discourse on the nature of salvation and the nature of the Holy Spirit, its independence, its mysterious working on the hearts of men. So. that we would be regenerated into new life. And so Nicodemus comes and he's, um, he knows that Christ is with God but he doesn't really understand. He's still sort of deaf, right? And our Lord says, you know, you have to have ears to hear. You have to have eyes to see. You have to have the capacity to understand these truths. And at, the, at first, Nicodemus doesn't seem to have this capacity. But over the, uh, over the Gospel of John, we will discover that Nicodemus is really transformed. In uh, John chapter 7, there's again a dialogue between the Pharisees and Christ. And... We're looking at verses, let's say, uh, 45. Then came the officers to the chief priests and Pharisees, and they said to, to them, Why have you not brought him? Like, why haven't you brought Christ uh, into a sort of a tribunal situation. The officers answered, Never man spake like this. Then answered them the Pharisees, Are ye also deceived? Have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed on him? Do the religious elites believe in Christ? Do the religious elites understand what's happening? Have any of the rulers or Pharisees believed on him? But this people who know not the law are cursed. Again, they are hanging the entirety of their religion on the law. Nicodemus says unto them, he that came to Jesus by night, being one of them, doth our law judge any man before it hear him and know what he doeth. He's arguing for the right of due process under even their religious law. They answered and said unto him, Art thou also of Galilee? Search and look, for out of Galilee ariseth no prophet. And every man went unto his own house. So Nicodemus starts to defend our Lord before the rest of the Pharisees. And then in chapter 19 of John, we get, it's after the the, the crucifixion. And after this, Joseph of Arimathea being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, so secretly, he besought Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus and Pilate gave him leave. He came therefore and took the body of Jesus. And there came also Nicodemus, which at the first came to Jesus by night and brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pound weight. Then took they the body of Jesus and wound it in linen clothes with the spices as the manner of the Jews is to bury. So Nicodemus is largely, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, these two uh, wealthy and respected men in their community are really going out taking a risk and they are embalming our lord and treating him to the burial honors that uh, any high status jew would have been afforded and then extra biblically church tradition sort of talks about nicodemus coming full into a, a fullness of faith to the point where his daughter was a believer and was Stigmatized in the community, where she became because of her faith, she became destitute, and the Jews uh, rejected her. And she was searching among the garbage for food. And even when they found her, uh, once they discovered that she was a believer and the, uh, the daughter of Nicodemus, she uh, she died in poverty and penniless. And it really says a lot about the power of faith in early believers that they would go to such an ignominious death. <clears throat> And so that's how the story of Nicodemus ends, is he comes to faith, and, uh, and powerful faith, and he has a family that, uh, that comes to faith. So I wanted to close that out, but we're moving on here. These things came into, Je- uh, after these things came Jesus and his disciples into the land of Judea, and there he tarried with them and baptized. So this is very much reminiscent. this is an echo of what we saw with John where John was initially in this land and he was baptizing and our Lord even went to him and was baptized. We studied all this in the first few chapters of John. And John was also baptizing, but John has now moved. He's moved uh, to Anon near to Salim, which is an area of uh, Samaria, because there was much water there and they came and were baptized. This is an important note as Baptists, that he deliberately went to where there was much water so that he could do immersion baptisms. Once you come to realize that baptism is by dem- immersion by definition, you start to realize that a lot of the arguments for non-immersion baptism are kind of silly because it's all over scripture and very clear. For John was not yet cast into prison. This line is important because, um, as we've sort of discussed a couple of times, there is a theory that John wrote his gospel after the other, the Synoptic Gospels, and in large part as a reaction to some of the bad theologies and hear bad history that came out of um, people just misunderstanding some of the synoptic gospels because in the synoptic gospels it sort of implies that immediately after Christ's baptism John was cast into prison and and beheaded, uh, but it's more like there was an overlap of their ministries where at one point uh, Christ was baptizing in Judea while uh, John was baptizing in Samaria. And so this is just clarifying. It's not saying the Synoptic Gospels are wrong. It's just clarifying for the audience at the time and now for us that there was an overlap in their ministries where they were doing the same thing, preaching the gospel of repentance and baptizing for that purpose. Now, Then some, and also just as a clarification, Christ never baptized anyone. It was his disciples baptizing people. It would have been a point of pride for folks to have been baptized directly by our Lord. And so our Lord is always um, directing us toward virtue, and in this case, the virtue of humility. And it's perfect that we're talking about humility because as we recall last week, or I guess two weeks ago, last time I was here, we were talking about how it's the beginning of uh, the secular world's celebration of pride. And what a wonderful you know, providential timing that here we get to learn about the real virtue, which is humility. So John had not yet been cast into prison, and there arose a question between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purifying. And they came unto John and said unto him, Rabbi, he that was with thee beyond Jordan, to whom thou bearest witness, behold, the same baptizeth, and all men come to him. John answered and said, a man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven. So these Jews come to Christ and they're asked or I'm sorry, they come to John and they're essentially stirring up a sort of contention between these two cousins. They're saying, look what you were doing in Judea, now this Jesus of Nazareth is doing the same thing, and now all the men go to that, go to him. What do you have to say to this he 's kind of like your competition isn 't he that's you know, they 're stirring up strife and John answers and says, "A man can receive nothing except it be given to him from heaven and what is this he 's talking about his own station he's saying this has been something given to me that this is my position to be this forerunner to be made low in the eyes of God, so that the 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 true Son of God can be lifted up. A man can receive nothing except to be given to him from heaven. This is a real point of humility to understand that all good things come from God. Ye Ye yourselves bear me witness. That I said, and he said this earlier in the Gospel of John, I am not the Christ, but... That I am sent before him. I am the forerunner. I am here to make the way straight. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom. Who's the bride? The bride is the church. But the friend of the bridegroom, which standeth and heareth him, rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This, my joy, therefore, is fulfilled. He's saying, I am not the bridegroom, I am the best man. I'm here to celebrate the bridegroom. I'm here to celebrate the groom and to lift him up, to take his direction. Just like we have best men today, they had best men back then, but they just took weddings much more seriously than we take them. And so you'd have a best man. And as you're storing up wine for this big wedding celebration, as you're making huge preparations for this giant communal gathering over the course of six months or a year, your best man would be the guy who you can delegate tasks to, who's doing communication with the uh, bridal party, all these things. So this is John's role in the plan of salvation that he is the best man of the bridegroom which is our Lord and the bride is of course the the body of Christ, the church which is here, the called out assembly the collective members of the body of Christ all here together, the church, beautiful things. He must increase but I must decrease, he must increase but I must decrease this is something I love, my, one of my favorite verses, I, I pray for it constantly. I think we all ought to pray for it constantly. We can see John's posture of submission and humility toward our Lord. He must increase, but I must decrease. This is the, it must all to be a constant refrain in our lives. And we're going to see how this humility is the mark of a Christian who obeys God in all of his laws and all of his commandments. I would At this point, I think it's probably wise. We ought to turn, we should start thinking about fatherhood and asking these questions. You know, what is, when we're honoring our parents, when we're specifically honoring the fathers, what are we called to do here? Now, these are controversial points of doctrine. Um, They ought not be because it just couldn't be more clear. But, when you're (laughs) in the world, they will will find, uh, they'll implant ideas. They create a we all have a world view, okay? So a world view is like the collection of beliefs and, and ideas that we hold, and some of them are like deeply-seated values, and other things are just peripherals that emerge out of those values, and we all have contradictory views. We're fallen. It's impossible to be perfectly consistent, but consistency and coherence does come from having proper axioms, which are things like, you know, what is? how do you know what is true? So the primitive Baptist knows that the scripture is the ultimate standard of Faith and practice, it is the ultimate standard of truth. All things must be passed through the lens of Scripture. And from that, you can test ideas, know whether they're true or not. Test, Try the spirits. Do they proclaim God, Jesus Christ, came in the flesh? These are the sorts of questions that Scripture encourages to uh, answer. And so, when we're talking about fathers and their role, husbands and their role, we should turn to somewhere like Ephesians chapter 5. He says... Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, right? So the same way that Christ is the groom and he's married to the church is the same way that wives ought to, uh, the same way that husbands ought to be in relationship to their wives. It's very simple. The way that we as a church treat Christ is the way that wives ought to treat their husbands, Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let wives be to their own husbands, their own husbands in everything. Not any husband, but your own husband. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church. And so now we're turning it around. Now we're looking at the groom. You're you're called to love your wife as Christ loved the church, which is to say to die for them, if necessary. I think of... um, I think it's 1 Corinthians chapter 11 where it says that the the, the hair is the glory of the wife but the wife is the glory of the husband. And what does that mean? The glory is like the crown. There's this great image that I've heard which is that the, the husband is sort of like the foundation of the house. Maybe the frame of the house. But the wife is like The art and the furniture and all the things that make the house a home—it's the glory. It's the thing that elevates and escalates and transcends the earthly material concerns. And so, if so, if Christ is like the rock, which the temple is built on, and the church is—the temple sort of representative of the church, and the rock is representative of the foundation—these are the types of images we get from Scripture to illustrate this relationship. Now, I know people will be like, "Brother Danny." You're not married. You have no right to talk about this. Well, I'm not talking about it. I'm just pulling right out of scripture what it says. You don't have to trust me. You can just trust trust the word of God. And you can go read it yourselves. And you'll see that I'm not taking anything out of context or or positioning it um, unfairly. But I really wanted to talk about that because he must increase, but I must decrease. This is what when we're honoring fathers, we're thinking to ourselves, how can we humble ourselves and raise uh, this person who gave us life and who has protected and provided for us all our lives? How can we raise them up? He that cometh from above is above all. He that is of the earth is earthly and speaketh of the earth. He that cometh from heaven is above all. Again, just making clear this distinction that man in his natural state, man without Christ, is of the earth. We are from dust unto dust, but Christ is from heaven. He is the incarnation of God. It is, it is a difference in kind that is significant and important because one results in perfection and light and glory and perfect teaching and the other results in error all the time. And what he hath seen and heard, that he hath testified, and no man receiveth his testimony. He that hath received his testimony hath set to his seal that God is true. This is a, this is about assurance. This is that you know we know when uh, when we have received his testimony, uh, we know that seal is set that God is true. For he whom God hath sent speaketh the words of God. For God giveth not the spirit by measure unto him. The Father loves the Son and hath given all things into his hand. This is the point-blank statement that God the Father loves God the Son and has given all things. This is about lordship. This is about the ownership and authority over all things, excluding no things, that our God the Father has given God the Son. He that believeth on the Son has everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. This is the consistency of the teaching between our Lord and his cousin, John the Baptist. John the Baptist is preaching the exact same message that our Lord was preaching to Nicodemus earlier in the chapter. And so you get this really beautiful, harmonious gospel preaching, which is the mark of true believing and true preaching. I want to wrap up um, just on one point which it might seem like a little bit of a digression but I hope that it's about humility and the virtue of humility that we've been studying here which is as we go into this week prior to our annual meeting and prior to communion it's meant to be a time of self-examination. We ought to be looking at ourselves and seeing that we're fit to take the Lord's Supper and partake of his body and of his blood. And so It will require humility. It will require a lowering of oneself and a submission of oneself to examine oneself in the light of the truth, which is our Lord. And so as we go through this week, you need to be in the word and you need to be applying this standard, this rule, this um, justifying measurement against yourself be looking towards our Lord, be examining his behavior and his posture towards God the Father, and be applying that standard to yourself in self-examination. And what you will find is obviously that you're lacking, that you're crooked, that you have the heart of a fallen man, just like my, me and just like all men, that we are totally depraved and utterly uh, incapable of saving ourselves. And then when you study this chapter that we have been Slowly making our way through, and we'll we're, we'll we're come back to this exact same text the next time I'm here because I can't do it all in 20 minutes, obviously. Um, but you understand the grace that is required from God, the the forgiveness, the the um, love that is required from God to send His only begotten Son, His unique Son, to die for your sins. And what that really entails, that someone perfect was loaded up, burdened with the accumulation of all of man's sin so that you, a called out assembly, could be lifted up and judged by God as if you were him. What a blessing it is. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we're so grateful for this time that we've had together, Lord. We're so grateful for your word and its instruction, Lord. Father, we just ask that we'd be Um, humbled this week, Lord, that we would uh, uh, see you clearly, that you would be in our midst for the rest of the service and for the rest of the week, Lord, that we would uh, just see you clearly, Lord, that we would be compared to that perfect standard, Lord, and that we would um, be brought near to you, Lord. by the washing away of our sins, by the cleansing of our consciousness, Lord, just make us more like your Son, Jesus Christ, who is the express image of your person. Father, we just ask to be conformed to his image, and we ask that he be glorified, and that you be glorified, and that your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, we ask all this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.
1: Appreciate the good message that Brother Danny has brought forth, and also want to encourage you, in addition to what Brother Danny said about preparing our hearts for the... Uh, meeting and the uh, fellowship and the communion this next week. I want to encourage you in in a couple of different ways. Number one, to adjust your schedules to be here and to try to be here in time to start the song service. We've got a lot of visitors coming, and it's a great blessing when folks are here when um, when we are here to encourage them. In beginning the song service. And secondly, these two men are men of God that are coming. And they're seeking God's will this week on what to preach on and that God would direct their mind and their thinking. So if you have some areas that you have questions about or you need clarification on, you take it to the Lord. And then the Lord can impress those men to be here and preach on the very things that you stand in need of. So you talk to the Lord about it this week, and you'll be amazed at how that God will use these men to answer questions that you have. That's how God works in a wonderful way like that. A couple of weeks ago, I called my mother one evening, and I said, what's going on? And she said, well, we're watching the news, and there's just not any good news on there. And I've thought about that and I thought about where can you find some good news? Did you know that the word gospel actually means good news? We ought to be able to come to the house of the Lord and hear some good news. The word gospel is clarified as God's spell, God's story, good story, good telling, and absolute truth. In John chapter 1, Brother Danny has been in John for a while in a great, great book. It says in chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God." The same in the beginning with God, all things were made by him, and without him was not anything that was made. In him was life, and the light was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and darkness comprehendeth it not. It starts out, and it tells us that the Word is God, the Word was with God. Verse 14 tells us, And the Word was made flesh, that's Christ, and the Word dwelt among us, and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten Father, full of grace and truth. So we want to talk about this morning, if the Lord would bless us, some good news. If you came here this morning to hear some bad news, then I hope you're disappointed because... Uh, The report that we have right here is simply some good news. In fact, the good news is about Jesus Christ. It's all about Christ. It's who he is. It's what he has done and what he is doing now. Not only what Christ has done, but what Christ is doing right now now. For His people. So the good news is all about Jesus Christ. The good news is about repentance and about forgiveness of sin. The good news is about eternal life and about heaven itself. And so those are some of the points of the gospel. That direct us on some good news. In Isaiah chapter 35, it talks about the effects of the gospel. If the gospel is good news, then it should have a good effect upon God's people. Isaiah chapter 35, great chapter right here. Isaiah chapter 40 also talks about the blessings of the gospel, the blessings of the good news, the effect of the good news. It describes it in chapter 35. It says the wilderness and the solitary place shall be glad for them. It it talks about the wilderness and the solitary place. And it even refers to it as a desert land. I don't know if any of you have ever been in a desert situation. I, some people desire and enjoy the desert. I really don't. I uh, When I fly to uh, uh, the meeting in Rio Doce, I fly to El Paso and usually the wind is blowing, usually it's dry, usually it's hot. Uh, and usually uh, there's even dust blowing in the air. And I don't just really enjoy that drive from El Paso to Riodosa When I get to Rio Doce, it's in the mountains. It's a beautiful setting. It's completely different than what it is in driving to get there. The desert is not something that's very appealing to me. I like a more fertile ground, a more green ground, a more lush atmosphere. That's my desire. Well, here it's comparing the gospel and the effect that the gospel has, and it says with Without the gospel, it's a dry, desert, barren land. But with the gospel, it is a flourishing uh, land, it is a growing land, it is a lush land, it is a watered land. And here's how it describes it right here. He says, the desert shall rejoice. Well, how is it that the desert rejoice? I, I think of this right here. I grew up in the desert, I grew up in West Texas. And Uh, It was a desert area. I I, I don't miss the dust storms that we had. But I'll tell you that in that area, in West Texas, when I grew up in that area, in all the little towns around there, Brownfield, Plainview, Littlefield, Leveland, La Mesa, uh, Midland, Odessa, Monahans, Lubbock, all these little towns had little churches all around. And, you know, I didn't even think about the desert area. When I was going to those church meetings, traveling from one little church to another, I was thinking about how that God blessed and poured out his blessings upon those little gatherings throughout a desert area. And it's almost like this right here. He says that the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. It shall blossom abundantly. It shall rejoice even with joy and singing the glory of Lebanon shall be given and the excellency of Carmel and Sharon and they shall see the glory of the Lord and the excellency of the Lord. And then he says, basically, here's what you do in delivering this wonderful gospel message. He said, here's the effect that it has on God's people. He said, you strengthen the weak hands. God's people get weary, get despondent along the way, Get discouraged along the way, but he says this wonderful gospel message of the Lord, it strengthens the weak hands. He says it even confirms the feeble knees when we get weak in our journey along the way. He said, Say unto them that are of a fearful heart, be strong and fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. Your God will come with a recompense. He will come and save you. He says to those that are of a fearful heart. He said you have a message to encourage them to be strong. Not in themselves, but in the Lord. Your strength is in the Lord. Says God will be your recompense. He will come and save you. He says then the eyes of the blind shall be open. And the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. He says, then shall the lame man leap as an heart and the tongue of the dumb sing. He's basically describing the effects of the gospel on an individual. He said, it's almost as if a lame man, when he hears the blessings of the gospel and it impacts his life, it says the lame man will leap as an heart. It says, for in the wilderness, waters will break out. And streams in the desert. And the parched ground shall become a pool of springs of water. It comes down and and uh, it, it, it continues on down the last verse. I love, love in this chapter right here. And the ransomed of the Lord. That means those that the Lord has purchased and bought and paid for with the price. It says the ransomed of the Lord shall Return. And then he tells us how they'll return. Those that have been weary, those that have been downtrodden, those that have been disheartened, discouraged, depressed along the way. He says the ransom of the Lord shall return and they shall come. Where are they returning to? They're coming to Zion, to the church. And he says they'll come to Zion with songs and everlasting joy upon their heads and they shall obtain joy and gladness. And he says, and sorrow and sign shall flee away. That's the effect that Isaiah says that the gospel has on an individual, the impact that it has. He says, they'll return unto Zion. They'll come with joy. They'll have joy and gladness and sorrow and sign shall flee away. So the next one we'll look at is in Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40. Another message of encouragement to God's people. I love how it starts out. Love how this starts out. Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people. Love this. He says, comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, saith your God. Speak ye comfortably unto Jerusalem and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished. What's the message that's proclaimed right here of the gospel? It's a message of comfort. A lot of God's people in the day in which we live need to be comforted along the way, need to be encouraged along the way. And the Lord says, You've got a message that's going to bring about to God's people a measure of comfort along the way. He says, Comfort ye, comfort ye. And then he tells who to comfort. He says, My people, those that Jesus Christ paid the price for their sins. You've got a message and a message of comfort to encourage God's people. Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, saith your God, speak ye comfortably unto Jerusalem. And then he says, cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished and that her iniquity is pardoned and that she hath received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. I love how he describes this right here. He says, you can go and tell the Lord's people that the warfare is over, that the battle is over. And you can tell them that Jesus Christ paid the price for their sins and they don't have to worry about helping the Lord out. He's already paid that price for them. He said, in fact, you tell them that the warfare is accomplished and that their iniquity is pardoned. But he says, you tell them that they have received Double of the Lord's hand for all their sins. So if we ever wonder, did the Lord Jesus Christ just barely pay for part of our sins? Did he pay for some of our sins? Did he pay for our sins to make part of the way for us and we have to make the rest of the way? He says, No, you can go and tell the Lord's people that the Lord Jesus Christ has not just barely paid for their sins or adequately paid for their sins, but the Lord Jesus Christ has paid double for their sins. So if he paid double for our sins, how much do we have to do? Not anything at all. Lord Jesus Christ paid double for your sins. And he says, therefore your iniquity is pardoned and your warfare is over and you're the beneficiary of that. And that ought to bring about a measure of comfort for God's people. You don't have to worry about your soul. And you don't have to worry about the soul. Of any of your children. Or grandchildren. Jesus Christ is the one that paid the price. For their sins. And he did it in full. He paid the price in full. And his, uh, his uh, uh, definition of fullness. Is paying it twice. He paid double. For your sins. This chapter is also. Really really. Good. Uh, o Zion, verse nine, O Zion that bringeth good tidings, get thee up into the high mountain, O Jerusalem, that bringeth good tidings. Lift up thy voice with strength. Lift it up and be not afraid. Say unto the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold the Lord God will come with a strong hand, and his arms shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his work before him verse 11 it says he shall feed his flock like a shepherd he shall gather the lambs in his arm and carry them in his bosom and he shall gently lead those that are with young who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hand who hath meted out heaven with span and comprehended the dust and the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains into the scales and the hills in a balance? he's talking about the power of God he's talking about the sovereignty of God He said, who hath directed the spirit of the Lord or his counselor hath taught him? He said, who is it that teaches God? God is in charge. God has all power. God is in control. Who is it that's been God's counselor? He said, in fact, all the nations, that's us, that's the people in this world. Behold, the nations are as the drop of a bucket and are counted as the small dust of a balance. Behold, he taketh up the isles, the islands, as a very little thing. He's talking about the sovereignty, the power of Almighty God. Verse 18 says, To whom will ye liken God, or to what likeness will ye compare him? He talks about God being the workman, being the one that, that creates us. Uh, It says in verse 22, It is he that setteth upon the circle of the earth, and the inhabitants are as grasshoppers that stretcheth out the heavens as a curtain, and spreadeth out them as a tent to dwell in. Talking more about the power of God. Verse 25 says, To whom will ye liken me, or shall I be equal, saith the Lord? It talks about the power of God again. And then the latter part of the chapter I love this portion right here. This is the encouraging message to the weary pilgrim and traveler along the way. Here he says in verse 28, Hast thou not known, hast thou not heard that the everlasting God, the Lord, is the creator of the ends of the earth? He neither fainteth not, neither is he weary. There is no searching of his understanding. And then the next three verses talk about the impact That God and the gospel and the good news and the message has upon God's people. You wanna hear some good news? You ought to be able to go to the house of God. You wanna read about some good news? You ought to be able to turn to God's Word and look at the promises in God's Word. You wanna hear good news? You sing some of the old songs of Zion. And that's gonna encourage not this natural man, not this outward man, but that's gonna encourage that spiritual man that's within. You want to hear some good news? You sing some songs. You read God's word. You go to the house of God and you're going to hear some good news about Jesus Christ. Everything that there is about Christ is encouraging to God's people and it's good news. You say, well, the Bible talks about sin. There's nothing good about sin. But the good news is that there is one that paid the price for our sin. So you may read about sin, but you read a little further on and you're going to see the satisfaction. You're going to see the treatment for sin. You're going to see the medicine for sin in Jesus Christ. And that's the good news for the child of God. Love these next three verses. He giveth. Power. Whoever need power. Says he giveth power to the faint. Does anybody here ever just get to the point. You just want to pitch in the towel. Well I'll tell you what. If it's up to you. You might as well just go ahead and pitch it in. But that's not where your strength lies. It's in the Lord. When you get faint then you're in a perfect situation to receive the power of God. If we're standing in our own strength, we don't need God's power. We're not looking for God's power. We're not looking for His deliverance and His strength and His help along the way. But when we get to the point that we really don't even know what we need and we come to the Lord and just say, Lord, I don't know what I need, but I need your help. I need your strength. I need your help right now it says he gives power to those that are just about ready to give up and to pitch in the towel and ready to faint along the way. He giveth power to the faint and to them that hath no might. You you ever deal with depression? Hope you don't. Hope you don't. But if you deal with depression, it all of a sudden, it sucks the might out of you. You don't even want to get out of bed, but you just want to pull the covers up a little bit higher over you. He says to the individual that hath no might, what's he in need of? He's in need of the Lord increasing his strength. He's not in need of getting stronger himself, but he's in need of the Lord increasing his strength. And he says right here, he giveth power to the faint, he giveth to them that hath no might. It says he increaseth increaseth their strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary. That's rare that you would see somebody in their youth that would faint and be weary. You know, when I think about a young person and their strength, one of the images that pops into my mind immediately is Bray. We had a situation out here that um, Bray will remember this even better than, than I will in, uh, in detail. But we had a situation out here that uh, uh, I believe the way I remember it, uh, I'd, pa- par- I'd backed up the car and uh, it was on an incline out here. Bray will remember it. And uh, I didn't put it in park. Somehow it got in neutral. I guess I put it there and, and ended up in neutral. And uh, the car starts rolling down the driveway. And Bray just walks over to the front of it and he just sort of puts his hand on it like that. And I mean, it was almost like magic. It stopped. What I couldn't see is that there were about three men behind that had grabbed the back of the car that were holding on to it. So when I think about strength, I think about Bray just walking over and putting his hand on there. And I thought, wow. Mark Humes had one, and I think Luke's uh, probably the beneficiary of this. Luke was about maybe three or four years old, and they were living in the country, and Mark knew that there was this tree that was rotten down at the bottom. Your dad, and I believe Luke was just a little fellow, maybe three or four years old, and Mark knew this tree was rotten down at the bottom. It was a big tree. How Big. Big. (laughs) And Brother Mark knew that it was rotten, but Luke didn't. And Mark walks over to that tree and just pushes it over. And Luke went, wow. That's what you normally think about when you think about young folks and their strength. But he says that right here that even the young folks might become weary in the way. But he says they could even, the young men could utterly fall. He says, if we're standing in our natural strength, he said, that's a very likely possibility, even if we're young. But he says, those that wait on the Lord that's young folks, that's the Brays and Lukes, and that's the rest of us that are much older. He says, those that wait upon the Lord, that the Lord is going to be the one that renews their strength, and they shall mount up with wings as eagles. And they shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. Their strength, whether you're young, whether you're old, whether you're in between, your strength is in the Lord. That's where you'll find it. That's what he's talking about right there. That is the gospel message. Just one or two more points to mention right here that's really, really good. Some more good news more good news. You you can go home and read this yourself. Uh, Hebrews chapter 4. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. He says this is something that's going to encourage you right now. He says, for we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. If I'm I'm glad I didn't write the Bible, but if I did, I would have taken out those two double negatives and just made it a positive. It was kind of hard for me to figure that out. But basically, what he's saying right here is that we do have a high priest that is touched with the feelings of our infirmities. And in all points, tempted like as we are without sin. He's saying Jesus Christ, who was tempted in all points, yet he knew no sin. But he says he was tempted in all points. And I think that's important because when we're tempted then we're reminded that Jesus Christ was tempted as well, yet without sin. So basically, he knows what we're dealing with. He knows what we're going through. And that's one of the reasons that I think it says he was in all points tempted like as we are. But he says, yet without sin. And then he says, we have a high priest. That's not a priest that we can go to here in this world, but it's Jesus Christ. So no matter... What your infirmity is. No matter what your trial. What your infirmity. No matter what it is that you're dealing with. You have a high priest. That knows what you're dealing with. He's touched with the feelings of your infirmities. And he says as a result. He said let us come boldly. And I, 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 I want to clarify that. I really believe that that means. Not in any degree of arrogance. Not in any degree of confidence in ourselves. But when we come boldly before the throne of grace, it is in our, our boldness is in Christ and what he does and who he is. And so as a result, we can come boldly to the throne of grace, not boldly in our own strength, but boldly in Christ. He says, let us come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I'm just going to touch one more and, and I'll encourage you to go home and read this. This is so, so good. It's just when I think of good news of the gospel, I think of this chapter it just jumps out, jumps off the page. Uh, this this is a great, great chapter. Encourage you to go home and read this Romans chapter eight, Romans chapter eight. I'm just going to paraphrase it. It talks about our status in Christ, starting with verse uh, chapter 8, verse 28, and verse 29. It talks about how that we are foreknown before Christ. It talks about being predestinated to be called, justified, and glorified. It takes us all through that process, even to the glorified state. It talks about that if God is for us, who can be against us? That's good news, because a whole lot of things that are against us in the world in which we live... Just about everything in this world is against us. And certainly Satan is against us. And the enemies of this world are against us. But the good news is that you've got somebody that's for you. And that's Jesus Christ. And he says if God be for us, who can be against us? He's basically saying God and Christ are way up here. The devil and those that oppose you are way down here. And therefore Christ and God are so much stronger than this little measly effort to thwart you along the way. He says, if God is for us, who can be against us? He says, if God has justified us, how can we be unjust? He says, is there anybody or anything at all that can separate you from the love of God? And then he comes down and he answers it. He says, there is nothing. That can separate you from the love of God. And then he says something else. That's simply the bottom line of good news. He said that we are more. I like it. I love it how he describes that. He doesn't say we're almost conquerors. We might be conquerors. We hope to be conquerors. He says we are more than conquerors. Through Christ. Who loved us. Now that's some good news. You can take that with you this week and you can feast on that. And it's a whole lot better than what you might read online or see on TV or hear on the radio. This is some good news that will encourage you throughout this week. You want to you want to hear good news. You want to think on good news. You go to God's word and you look at the promises of God for his people. And that is some really good news. You You ought to be able to come to the Lord's house and be encouraged by the good news. There's there's so many other other verses. John chapter 14. We touched on that recently. Simply starts out. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. And Jesus Christ said, I go to my father's house. He said to prepare a place for you. And he says, and I'm coming back to take you there as well. He said, If it were not so, I wouldn't have told you. But he says, I go to prepare a place for you.